Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. We are now less than two weeks out from our upcoming Global Startup Summit, which will be a seven-day virtual event kicking off on February 18th with Africa Day, followed by Asia Pacific Day, Europe Day, Middle East Day, Latin America Day, and finishing off with Canada Day on February 24th. Global Startup TV is where to register if you haven't already. Today's episode features our second guest from an amazing Southern Africa fintech startup called Zona. CEO Mike Quinn is joining us to discuss the Zona journey from his perspective. Last time we were joined by his co-founder, Brad McGrath, about a year and a half ago. On this episode, Mike and I dive into how he made his way to Zambia originally, some of the insight that he's gained in successfully building a fintech scale-up in the markets of Zambia and Malawi, and much, much more. We've been on an Africa tear on the show the past few weeks, and so I'll be sure to be mixing it up over the coming weeks with different episodes. But now I'll present my conversation with Mike Quinn, the CEO at Zona. Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond, here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. So we are here with Mike Quinn, the CEO of Zona. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just start us off a little bit with uh, about you and then how you first ended up in Africa? Thanks very much, Andrew, for, for having me. So I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, I lived there for 18 years and then went and did a mechanical engineering degree at UBC in Vancouver. Um, and I think it was the last year of my degree, I discovered what was at the time a startup organization called Engineers Without Borders um, that had a bunch of student chapters around uh, all the universities in Canada. Uh, and the, the idea was uh, to attract young engineering students to, to see how they could apply uh, their skills and training and education to to do something positive in the world. And uh, I, at the time, I wasn't super excited about um, working as an engineer. I was kind of just going through the motions and, and uh, was able to graduate and get my degree, but was looking for more meaning um, of how to apply that. And I, I went to a conference from Engineers Without Borders and was just uh, uh, very excited to be part of this, this network and then applied for an overseas uh, volunteer placement and uh, as soon as I graduated, and they, they sent me to Ghana. Um, so I, I spent about 10 months working in rural Ghana with a, a small um, enterprise uh, project run by a family uh, and this, this micro-entrepreneur um, micro of supplying power to his village. Uh, and he had a, a, like a little diesel engine that could supply his, uh, or power a, a, a maize dehusker and a battery that could a battery charger for people to have like lights and uh, power their TVs. And he ran it as a small business. And I worked for this organization that uh, had some funding to, to support that and just learned a, a tremendous amount in that year. Uh, and as soon as I got back uh, to Canada after the placement was finished, I, uh, I immediately signed up for a second placement because I um, realized that I'm like, Hey, this, I had so much meaning when I was working in Ghana and I, I, I was still young and, didn't really want to jump into a career at that stage. So I, I got a second placement this time in Zambia. Um, this would have been like 2004, 2005. And 
worked with an NGO called Care International and then on a much bigger project at the time. So it was supporting about 600 small-scale farmers to plant and, uh, and grow a drought-resistant cereal crop that could then be harvested and sold to the local market. And, uh, but through these, uh, these uh, cooperative enterprises, um, and I spent a year and a half working with them and, and just had like a great learning experience again and kind of fell in love with working in Africa. But I uh, realized I couldn't be a volunteer forever. And I was starting to get um, excited about the thought of being an entrepreneur and, and, uh, and having my own business one day. And I, I got into a, a master's degree program um, in London at the London School of Economics, um, studying international development, and then uh, met my now wife there. And then after that, had my uh, big break um, when I got into the, the Said Business School at Oxford um, on a school scholarship for social entrepreneurship. And it was a fully funded scholarship to do an MBA for a year. Uh, and just, again, a wonderful experience, built my network. And, and when I graduated from that, um, I was, was thoroughly overeducated at that time. Um, and I just, I wanted to move back to Africa, um, be an entrepreneur and have impact. And those were like the three criteria I had. I had no idea what to do or how to do it. Um, but I was able to get a consulting um, contract from a, an impact investment fund um, where I pitched to them saying, I'll go find entrepreneurs for you to invest in. Uh, and this was 10 years ago, I think in early 2009. And uh, I, I said I could go back to Zambia where I still had a, had a good network um, and then flew into Lusaka. And then literally my first day met Brad and Brett McGrath, who were the founders of Zona. And they were just getting the business off the, feet, off, um, off the ground at that point. Um, so that's a kind of a brief summary of my background and how, how I got started at Zona. Okay, so, so you came across the, the Zona brothers during that second trip and not, not during your first experience with uh, doc, Doctors Without Borders or engineers? Yeah, correct. Um, the, there was a, a guy I met when I was a volunteer who worked for USAID. And when I came back to Zambia, I contacted him and said, I'm looking for entrepreneurs to invest in. And he was the, the, the mutual link. His name was Mike Field. And he was good friends with Brad and uh, was, was one of the early kind of people that helped Brad and Brett, you know, incubate the idea. And he, he gave them some initial grant funding, I think, for $200,000 from USAID. And uh, when I, I contacted Mike, he said, you need to meet Brad and Brett. So I, I literally sent one email uh, and he, forward, he replied saying, meet these two guys. And uh, I think three months later, three or four months later, Grassroots Business Fund invested $200,000 of, of convertible debt. So I I managed to lead them through this due diligence um, to, to put in a bit of money. Um, the business was super early stage at the time. It was uh, you know, pre-revenue, um, and it was trying to solve this problem in the agriculture sector of helping um, companies pay smallholder small farmers. But uh, meanwhile, M-Pesa in Kenya was really getting traction with this mobile money solution that was growing like a weed. Um, and so... Brad and Brett uh, were looking to say, how can we replicate that? And maybe we should look at a money transfer service in Zambia. Um, and so that's what I helped them get funding for. Uh, and then as soon as the funding closed, I had built a good relationship with these guys and said, uh, you know, I, I really, I really want to back them. And, and I knew, you know, I sensed how hard it would be to get the, the business going. So um, I, I decided to join them full time, um, kind of took a half salary and, uh, managed to get uh, the, the investment fund to give me a consulting contract on a continuing basis. Uh, and then uh, several months later, I, I wanted to be a partner in the business because uh, the two of them were brothers and it was this family business, but I 
you know, I think we also all saw the potential it could have, and we, we blew through the, the initial round of funding pretty quickly, so we were out of cash again. And I went back to uh, to the only bank I could I could uh, talk to at that point, which was the bank of mom and dad, um, and convinced my parents, who, were, who had just retired as high school teachers, and, and they moved into this retirement home in Victoria, and asked them to take out a mortgage on their retirement home and lend me $100,000 uh, to put into this startup business in, uh, in Zambia with these two guys I'd met like a, you know, several months earlier. Um, and very luckily they, uh, they wired the money. There was no contract or anything like that. And I, I promised them I would pay them back one day, which I, I did over, uh, over uh, several years, but they just had, had belief in me. And I was, I think, pretty persuasive saying, you know, we were, we were going to go build a business that could uh, help a lot of people and, and really transform the, the financial landscape in Africa. And I'm pleased to say we're, we're or somewhere along the journey of, of that happening. So it's, it's been a fun ride so far. It's always super re- rewarding when you're able to uh, you know, get a business off the ground and then also pay back that, that friends and family round. Something that's super inter- interesting to me is that you've had a lot of experience with the private sector, with the nonprofit sector, uh, and it, it seems like all, all sorts of um, sources of funding with Zona, whether it be friends and family, grants, venture capital, working with banks. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts really, you know, in 2019 moving forward, what do you think is is most needed to kind of continue the development of Africa as, as a whole? Is it more so the, the nonprofit and NGO model? Or do you think that we're moving towards more of a need for uh, sources of funding for, for private sector companies and, and that would have the, the most impact? Yeah, I, I feel that that shift is, has happened, um, you know, maybe not at a, at a macro scale, but, um, you know, that, that, that was a big debate when I finished my MBA of it's like, is it trade or aid? And, um, and like impact investing was, uh, it's called social investing at the time it was like super small and early, early stage, early stage. Uh, but now in Africa, there's, uh, a lot of impact investors, um, that are, are very bona fide and have, have put like some significant amount of money in and set up offices and are, are growing startups. And there, there's like very good uh, startup ecosystems in Kenya, in uh, uh, Ghana and Nigeria and South Africa. Uh, we're starting to see like uh, especially the seed investing has, has um, really uh, emerged as, you know, it used to be super hard to get funding. And um, we like Grassroots Business Fund uh, took a punt on us at the, be- the very beginning, which I think we're very, uh, very grateful for, but there wasn't many other people to go to at the time. And now there's like incubators and startup accelerators and this money coming in. And a lot of these startups that are emerging are, are working um, with NGOs, working with governments, uh, with the private sector, banks and, and uh, you know, other financial service providers and, and like new business models and, and innovations are, are emerging. And it's it's super exciting um, to be part of it, to have been to, to have seen that shift. Uh, but it's still like, I think very early on in the journey and it's going to need a lot more capital. Um, and the, the big area that um, there's probably two big gaps that we're seeing. So first is I think uh, venture capital is largely non-existent and, um, and where, where you can get venture capital, it's, it's from impact investors and primarily like U S based impact investors um, that are starting to invest in Africa um, and so, you know, to find uh, venture capital, um, you know, even in South Africa is extremely difficult. The model is much more private equity and like go to an investor once you have a cash flow positive proven business that 
you know, you've, you've, um, you've grown for the last five years on your own kind of blood, sweat and tears, uh, as opposed to you have a vision and a technology or product and, and you need to, to really get some money to scale that up. And so the impact investors are, are filling that gap, but there's, I think, a lot more that needs to happen. And uh, where we at Zona are really seeing the gap is, is really the growth capital. Um, so, so now that we've achieved a scale um, that we, we need round, like funding to get us to the next level, um, and we're, we're starting to kind of tap out uh, the impact investors because we've, uh, we've got a lot of them on our cap table and we've uh, bothered a lot of them for money already. And now we, we kind of need that, that next round of, you know, 20, 30, $40 million um, to get going. Um, you, you have two choices. You either go to like the big private equity houses um, that invest in Africa and there's, there's a bunch of money, but they're, they have very traditional private equity models. And again, very much looking at like your kind of EBITDA cash flow positive businesses with a track record and more conservative and, and a formula around, can you, you know, increase your EBITDA multiple by three times in the next three years to get to an exit. Um, and, uh, and in absence of that, you then have your, your DFIs um, that's like more long-term patients, but it's, it's, they're more bureaucratic and, uh, and so there is, a, I think, a gap in just like, you know, growth capital and, and uh, VC funding um, for scale in Africa. Uh, and that's what's going to be needed to take a lot of these like startups and, and um, innovations that are emerging now and, and really getting them to the scale that I think they will have an impact. And just one more comment on that is, is without that, what tends to happen, it's certainly a wall we've faced, is that you know, we, we filled a gap uh, when we started in Zambia and then we expanded to Malawi um, and we had a lot of success because we were new to like early to market. And then uh, then we see like the really deep pocketed uh, you know, telco networks and banks um, and others like that, that have come in and, and um, you know, either don't know how to partner with startups or um, they have their own strategies and they kind of uh, copy the model and put a lot more money behind it. Um, and then it becomes twice as hard to get funding because then you've got deep pocketed competitors that are, are, are copying you. Um, and you need the money to kind of uh, break through that, um, and grow to get to scale where you, you have a sustainable advantage. But that's been hard for us. So we've, you know, had to, to really become much more strategic and look at how do we, how do we leverage partnerships and, and enable big pocketed players as opposed to, to try to win a market ourselves which is a smarter strategy, but it's also like very, you know, uh, it's, it's dependent on resources. And I think if, if you had a, a more availability of venture capital, you could, you know, you could take more risks and you'd see more companies taking risks, which could lead to innovation scaling faster and bigger. I completely agree. And I mean, the reason I asked the question is because from, from based on what I've seen, uh, I'm a big believer in, in the private sector and more, uh, more ca- early stage capital being available for entrepreneurs. But it, but it also makes sense that there needs to be that, that growth stage capital for, for the zonas of, of the world that actually find their product market fit or starting to scale up. And I, I think you're spot on in that the, the development finance in, institutes are, or institutions are in, in the best position to not necessarily launch their own fund, but act like a fund of funds. And um, the World Bank, IMF, USAID, UKAID, I mean, I think they're in the best position to start filling that growth capital gap. Now, w- one thing I would love to hear, and I, I came across this, this YouTube video uh, last night, actually, about the five weeks that you spent living uh, and, and working with your agents on the ground. Um, it, I mean, it's a great, it's a great YouTube video, which I'll, I'll link up in the show notes because I think more people need to see it. 
but I would love to hear a little bit more um, about your experience really doing that and, and, and what you took away. Yeah, it was, um, it was a great experience and uh, it actually took me back to my roots of when I was a volunteer with Engineers Without Borders. And like, that's, that's what I used to do, like, right? It was uh, being completely immersed uh, in the fields, um, in like the local culture. And uh, I found uh, leaving that and then going and, you know, doing a master's and MBA and then um, becoming like the CEO of this business and then spending a lot of time just raising capital and in boardrooms and pitching in, to investors. Um, I was losing touch with, uh, uh, with my customers and, and it was just like personally draining on me and I, I wanted to, to rekindle that. Um, so I, I was very selfish for, um, uh, for doing, taking that trip. Uh, I didn't really appreciate the impact it would have like on our staff and, and externally um, that you know, created a lot of ripples afterwards. Uh, but I just wanted to re uh, to rekindle that um, that initial kind of feeling I had when I when I moved to Africa and, and you know we were a fairly mature business at the time and uh, I wanted to do it properly and not just stay in hotels and then I, I think our um, chief marketing officer at the time had a, had the idea that I take somebody to to videotape it so that we could share the experience um, internally and externally um, and then we uh, found. In our call center, uh, this young Malawian woman who uh, was uh, a photographer and a videographer in her spare time um, and said, hey, do you want to come hang out with me for five weeks in, in Zambia and Malawi? And spending you know, at least 24 hours with each of the agents visited, I visited, I think, was really key because I, I've spent a lot of time when I get to the field of like talking to customers and getting out to, to see things. But I think really immersing myself in the day in the life of an agent and understanding what it's like to, you know, work in one of these kiosks all day and serve customers who are, can, can sometimes be irate and people who, who need to get their money because they've got a sick relative and the pressure of like at the end of the day, if, if there's like a, a big a lot of demand and a bunch of customers come at the same time and handling cash, uh, that was like a very eye-opening experience. But then after hours of, of getting to know the agent's families, understanding their stories, the impact we were having, a lot of the problems that we could solve. And I think it just, it was, it was great um, to help me formulate like strategy and then to take those lessons back to our team and to share that story of, uh, of like continuing to be kind of true to our customers and living our values and, and solving their problems and really not getting too cocky about, uh, you know, about the success we were having as a business because ultimately our, our agents were, were huge partners in that and they, they were sharing in that, some of that success, but they were also facing a lot of challenges that we could solve. Um, so that was, that was my main takeaways. And so right now, Zona is operating in, I think, Malawi and, and Zambia. How similar are these markets? And you know, what, what would you say are really the, the biggest difference of, of operating in the two? So Malawi has completely surprised us. So I think for a long time, we were dominant in Zambia because we were first to market uh, and had like a great brand and we were there before competitors came in. Um, and then we went to Malawi as, as a bit of an expansion experiment. Um, and now the kind of scales have tipped where Zambia has become a hyper competitive market with uh, these telecoms um, uh, throwing huge amounts of money at mobile money, uh, copying our model and our footprint. Banks are coming to the party and, and we've, uh, we've seen the, uh, a big drop in margins and then decline in volume on like our legacy products that's for a long time were like very sustainable. Um, and we've had to reinvent ourselves and, and really 
leverage our technology and, and the assets we've built and our knowledge of the market and start um, being much more strategic about how we work with partners and, and, and solve problems and, and figure out how to scale. Um, and uh, so, so Malawi, Zambia has kind of gone through this market shift um, that's caused us to iterate. Uh, Malawi, we, we took off quite quickly, but then we found a, a really good use case with a partner named Makuru that does uh, remittances primarily from South Africa into to Southern Africa. And so there's a lot of Malawians living in South Africa that send money back to their family. And the, Makuru's customers are in South Africa and they send the money on their platform. And then Zona cashes out those money, those remittances on the ground to the recipients. And we have an integration with, uh, with Makuru. And the, I think the volumes have just like continued to surprise us uh, to the point where uh, I know in December this year, we grew like 40% over November. In November, we had grown like 20% over October. And it's just got to the point where I think we served uh, over 1.1 million customers, terminated $100 million of remittances from South Africa to Malawi with us last year. And typically like pretty small values of like you know 30 to $40 US equivalent. There's uh, just been like this great use case, but it also it keeps us humble because it's like these are people that are essentially migrants into South, economic migrants into South Africa because they've left their families um, in search of uh, a better living. And then they take all of the, the income that they make and they send it back to support um, their relatives and their children's and nephews and nieces. And uh, we're, we're proud to be able to support that. And then kind of deepening our partnership of looking at what other products and services can we offer the Malawian market. And th- there are similarities between the two, like the, the language is the same both English speaking, but also the local language um, is, is shared. Zona means it's real in both languages. And there's like similar regulation and, and some, some like cultural crossover between the two, but still pretty different stages in the evolution. Uh, and we, we kind of see Malawi as, as a couple of years behind Z- uh, Zambia, but it's been very informative watching how Zambia has evolved to now say, okay, how do we get ahead of that in Malawi and actually drive the, the change so it can be faster, but we can also emerge as, as a leader in that. Yeah, that makes sense. And so how, how do you deal with the, I, I assume like a big, we'll say business risk is the, the, the currency fluctuations because, you know, Zambia and Malawi's currency, I'm sure pretty volatile relative, based on, you know, commodity prices and demand and all that, but you all have pretty fixed expenses in, in, your, in your Cape Town offices, that, right? And so, I mean, how, how do you deal with that? Uh, the, the the challenge of that, yeah, with with difficulty, hey, it's almost killed us a couple times. Um, we uh, we experienced a big currency devaluation a few years ago, um, linked to like a slowdown in China, which created a the copper price to crash. And Zambia is a big copper producer, and then there was also a, a, a water shortage at the time, which was cutting back power um, to the mines. So there's like a, both a drop in output and a drop in in price and uh, the, the currency, I think, depreciated like um, you know by more than half in three in a three month period, uh, and our revenue was entirely in Zambia Kwacha at the time, and we had a lot of expenses in South African rand, and then we had a lot of investment, including some debt in U.S. dollars, um, and we had very few expenses in Kwacha, so it was um, a big mismatch. And uh, luckily, we had uh, great investors. Um, and we were able to get some bridge financing. And that was just the first lesson of like why you should be super selective if you have a choice of, of getting great investors that can really have your back in the uh, in, when times get tough and you, you face a crisis like this. Uh, so we were able to get through it. Um, and then 
being an emerging market currency like South Africa actually started to uh, to depreciate the, the rand, and, and um, that brought our costs down. So we we lost a lot of revenue, but then our costs also started um, to, to decrease, and, and we were kind of naturally hedged there. Uh, but it, it you know forced us to really spend a lot of money and time and energy into uh, you know managing liquidity between entities and and uh, following exchange rates and because you can't really get hedges for these, these, uh, these currencies um, to any reasonable amount. Um, and then to set up a corporate structure to allow like efficient movement of capital and transfer pricing. And, um, and these are just like taxes on a startup because you're, you're spending all of your time and money and effort on lawyers and auditors and setting up companies and figuring out, you know, financial flows between them as opposed to like satisfying your customers and building new products. Um, and then that happened again last year. Uh, there, there was like another 20% decrease. So it recovered a little bit, but then it dropped again last year. And, uh, and now we, we kind of just built, <coughs> excuse me, resilience um, of, of learning to, to roll with the punches and, <coughs> and also like financial planning of, of ensuring, uh, you know, we have a, have a cash cushion and, and we um, we're like conservative with our numbers um, and, in the past, we haven't done that so well, and we've, we've really been trying to, you know, to, to get our, our financial model sound um, so that we can withstand shocks as they come because we know they will, uh, and that's just part yeah. of life. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a reality for a lot of African entrepreneurs. And, uh, I mean, we actually had Yele Badamosi on from Microtraction last week, who, who's actually now the, the director at Binance Labs, and a lot of the conversation was around, you know, how can – uh, different applications of blockchain and cryptocurrency help to create more uh, a more stable store of value for for African entrepreneurs, which I think is a huge issue for a lot of these smaller countries um, and for a lot of these SMEs who uh, are I mean already have liquidity issues. But I mean it, it'll be interesting to see that how that plays out. But Mike, this has been such a pleasure. We're going to finish off with a quick fire round, four questions up to sixty seconds per answer. Does that sound good? Sure, sounds good. What is your favorite vacation spot on the African continent outside of South Africa? Uh, I would say uh, Lower Zambezi um, National Park in Zambia. Uh, so it's about uh, you know a two hours drive south of Lusaka, but the roads are horrible. So you you can if if you have the means take a, a little chartered plane, um, and the the place is just breathtakingly beautiful is the Zambezi river and you can be fishing on the Zambezi river for tiger fish with a herd of elephants um, next to you and a pot of hippos and then go out and um, have, uh, have leopards walking around your camp at night. It's just like a, a very magical experience. So um, I, I've only, I've only done it, I think twice uh, in the decade I've lived here, um, but it's, it's always just been super memorable and I can't wait to go back. Got it. So let's say it's it's a Friday night. I am in Lusaka. My my flight leaves tomorrow afternoon. Um, give me your recommendation for like a, a bar, or restaurant, or like what what is a, a good night out in the town look like? <laughs> I, so I, I used to be able to answer this so quickly, but now I've got a six year old and a three year old. Uh, so I like I don't even know that answer in Cape Town to be honest and. Uh, Lusaka has changed so much. Um, the development here has been been amazing. So there's actually a choice. So what I I would used to say is is uh, there's a nightclub called Shea and Temba, which is super fun, um, and also a place in the uh, in Kalinga Linga where you can go 
uh, dancing with, uh, with mirrors all around you until the wee hours of the morning. But I, I have to admit it's been a very long time um, since that's happened. But uh, Lusaka, there's now restaurants. Of, you, like The steak is amazing here. Um, there's like Thai, there's Mexican, there's movie theaters. Um, the place has transformed in the last five years. So it's, it's a very livable city for, and, and a great place to visit as well. So who is a female entrepreneur in, in the Cape Town ecosystem that you admire the most right now and why? Um, great question. I, I'm gonna, can I give you one outside of Cape Town? Because there's somebody who's jumped to mind. Sure, sure. Why not? Is it in South Africa? Uh, so, so I was going to say Elizabeth Rosiello from BitPesa. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. He passes through South Africa enough to, and is, is, uh, is, is building a, a pan-African um, uh, cryptocurrency business. Uh, and I just have a huge amount of respect for her. Uh, we are part of uh, a financial inclusion group called The Enablers, sponsored by the Gates Foundation and FinTech Stage, around um, how do we influence the, uh, the financial ecosystem across Africa. And, um, and she, like, I'm just really impressed by what she's built and the relationships she's developed and how she's achieved scale and holds her own, you know, when she's talking to the, whether it's the governor of Nigeria or um, other entrepreneurs and partners. Um, so I've got to know her, her very well. And there's, there's definitely lots in, in South Africa. Uh, but to be honest, when I, when I'm in Cape town, it's, it's a lot of uh, like a lot of time. I've, I kind of have my family time there because I 40% of the time outside of Cape town. Um, so I'm not as tapped in, uh, and I, I can speak to a couple of the, the male entrepreneurs that I know are very well that I, I'm, I'm closer to, but Elizabeth is the one that popped to mind for an African entrepreneur. Right. So fun facts, Elizabeth was actually the, the first interview that I ever did for this podcast. This was back like winter, winter 2015, uh, fresh out of college, and she actually responded to a cold email. So I'm very, very appreciative of, of her and um, – it's really awesome to see the progress that, that she's made with BitPesa. But yeah. final final question, what is your favorite thing about living in Cape Town? Or at least the, the 60% of time that, that you're able to, to, to be there. Yeah. Uh, the favorite thing is the mountains. Um, and there's like a choice between mountains and beaches and wine farms. And uh, But I, you know, coming growing up in Calgary and living in Vancouver, like I, I'm at home when I'm hiking and, and – uh, from my my doorstep in Cape Town, I can literally climb like I think four different mountains and and uh, be home in like three hours. It's it's just an amazing thing. Um, it, it helps me kind of reconnect and switch off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at and Burke. That's A N D B E R K to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world. Oh, 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 oh,